The Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path to wealth. Today, on the Physician's Road podcast, we speak with Blair Guru, Managing Director of Mercury Fund, one of the largest early stage venture capital firms in the city of Houston. We walk through what early stage VC investing looks like on an institutional level and why his individual limited partner high net worth investors are still valuable to him. We also interview attorney Felix Chevalier, who along with local financial advisor Mathis Connor and businessman Heath Butler are creating an educational platform to help individual investors learn more about and gain access to early stage companies and larger venture capital firms. To learn more, go to www.thephysiciansroad.com forward slash mercury. Again, www.thephysiciansroad.com forward slash mercury to learn more. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Welcome, everyone. It's Dr. Eric Tate back again on the Physicians Road podcast. Today, we're back on the path to wealth, and we're going to continue our series on kind of early stage angel slash venture capital investing. And so what we're going to do this time around is we're going to actually kind of move up in weight class a little bit. We're going to talk to what we I would say is the granddaddy kind of venture capital firm in the Houston market. Um, it's Mercury Fund. And we are so lucky to have um, one of their founders and managing directors here, uh, Blair Guru, to talk with us. We're also going to pivot a little bit towards the end of the interview and talk with some local people here in the Houston market who are helping average everyday investors, accredited of course, um, have access to these types of more sophisticated early stage companies. And that will be Felix Chevalier, who is an attorney and an investor here in the market and potentially Mathis Connor, who's also a financial advisor here in the Houston area. And so Blair, we're gonna start with you because um, we know your time is precious and valuable and we really thank you for, ha- for having you on. And what I want you to do is just give us a little bit about your backstory. You have been an integral part in the Houston ecosystem in building what has, for those of us who've been here for a very long time, seems like a very nascent VC kind of ecosystem here. And it appears that you've been very, very instrumental in kind of building that up. So kind of give us a little bit about your background and how you came to, to head um, Mercury Fund. No, no problem. Yeah, first off, thanks for the invite to talk, Eric. Really appreciate that. So from a backstory perspective, I went to school in a small uh, college in Virginia, Washington and Lee University. When I got out of school in 94, I worked at Deloitte in the DC area, working with tech companies. Uh, and a lot of those tech companies were software companies. And that's what, what we invest in today. And that's really where I got my start. In uh, 97, I moved to Houston. Uh, my wife was here and she had gotten into vet school at Texas A&M. So I thought I would follow the brains and the beauty. And when I came here, uh, I took a job in investment banking in the energy industry, right? Everyone was in the energy industry. And my, my future father-in-law said, hey, you're in Houston, you got to be a lawyer in the restaurant business or the energy industry. I said, all right, 
energy industry is pretty much the only thing I, I'm qualified to do, I guess. Um, but, uh, and that was a lot of fun, right? I mean, people that have been in M&A and corporate finance, very exciting. But if you remember back in 1998, oil fell to $20 a barrel. And $20 a barrel, there weren't any deals getting done. And so I was a young uh, professional and I found this opportunity to join a nascent uh, nonprofit incubator called the Houston Technology Center. So I was one of the first employees on payroll there. And when I went to HTC, I got to work on a number of interesting projects. Um, I helped put together uh, partnerships with Rice University. Uh, I helped to uh, work with dozens and dozens of startups. But one of the things I got to do was I put together a group called the Houston Angel Network. And so the Han, which is now one of the most active angel groups in the U.S., was really a project we did internally where we would meet startups, we'd help them put their business plans and their PowerPoints together, and then we present them to this nascent angel group. When I formed uh, Han at HTC, you know, eventually we wanted to spit it out and let the angels run it themselves. But the chairman of that group at the time uh, was Paul Hobby. And Paul uh, ended up hiring me out of Houston Technology for a venture firm he started with some friends of his called Genesis Park. So for about five to six years, I worked under him. And when I would make an investment in a software company, they would ask me, now, what's the company lacking? And I would say, wow, finance or marketing or sales. And they would actually throw me into these companies for six months at a time to do that activity and make them better. Now, the problem was I didn't have an MBA, <laughs> didn't necessarily know what I was doing. So it was kind of the school of hard knocks, learning and jumping in and out. But I got a lot of operations experience. And the last company I jumped into was a company called Intermat. Uh, which was an industrial software company, took over as CEO and sold it to IHS before IHS went public. And so once I did that and made a little bit of money, um, a good friend of mine, Dan Watkins, who had started a commercialization center at Rice University called the Rice Alliance, he had an idea to launch a venture fund and he put a business plan together. And I called him back up, joined him, and so we launched Mercury Fund in uh, 2004. Perfect. I mean, so I'm laughing um, because I actually came to Houston in, in, in 1998 myself. Uh, Felix came roughly around that time as well. Um, and many of the names, you literally have just walked us through the timeline of kind of Houston's growth um, in the technology space. I remember HTC. Uh, I remember Han. I went to, I was in business school at Rice in 2000. So being around the, the alliance and kind of how that was forming. So you literally have just walked through Houston history, but also through some of my educational history as well. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. And so, 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 okay, there are a ton of investment firms that are out there in the world. Why did you feel, what did you see? What did you say in the Houston ecosystem? Why did you say, hey, we need to, we need to start this fund to do this thing? Yeah, that, that's the big question, right? I mean, I think when anyone launches a company or launches an investment firm, it's what niche are you going to fit in the market? So um, after my partner, Dan, had launched uh, the Rice Alliance, I don't know if you remember Dr. Steve Corral, who had <laughs> run the alliance. Before Absolutely. Um, Dan's running a seed fund, and Dan was doing university check transfer deals. Uh, I was doing software deals for Paul at Genesis Park, but we found we were two of the only people walking the halls looking for entrepreneurs. And then in 2004, 2005, if you remember, the big venture firm in Texas was Austin Ventures. They probably did 60, 70% of the deals in the state. Well, AV at the time became more of a private equity firm because we were going through a recession. And it was really difficult to get startups uh, funded in later stages and sold. And so they made a public announcement saying, hey, we think the market is really stalled. So we're going to 
start moving our capital much more upstream. Um, so there was a huge opportunity to build an early stage fund. And so Mercury was essentially filling the early stage funding gap left by AV and then becoming a little bit more of a private equity firm. And so our first fund that we launched in 2005 was 20 million raised purely through high net worth and family office funds. And since then we've raised three subsequent funds. So we now have about 300 million under uh, management. Uh, a lot of our capital now comes from institutions, but we based our first fund and still have a lot of high net worth involvement because that really helps us build our network and, uh, and see lots of deals. And so, okay, so let's, we weren't going to talk about that, but so you, you are now essentially an institutional platform. And for those who are new to the space, what that just means is kind of pension funds, um, municipalities, you get a lot of money from them um, so for, for the per- people listening, as opposed to those of us who are, would be considered high net worth. We, we, we make good incomes and, and want to make an investment. That's how you started, but that's no longer where you are. But curiously, why do you, so you're saying what value do the high net worth people who were your original partners still bring to you today? What, what value do you find in them? Yeah, it's deal flow, um, not only locally in Houston and Texas, but everyone has got their own network unique to their own industry. And it is amazing. I would say 10 to 15 percent of the deals in all of our funds even though now we're 90% institutional investor, come from those networks with individuals. Institutional investors like endowments, pension funds, they tend not to uh, necessarily be conduits for deals. Angel investors are. And uh, a lot of times too, if we're doing an early stage deal, we may have expertise in real estate, in law, in energy within our LP base. And a lot of times we may invite that LP to come in and actually help us with diligence. And they may actually want to do an earlier stage investment alongside the fund. And we've just found that to be really, really helpful and really kind of activate our, uh, our fund model. Great. And so if you're listening and you're interested in kind of being in this space, not necessarily with Mercury, but if there are things that you can bring to the table besides money as an individual investor, yes, you might not be writing a hundred million dollar check, but if you have an extensive network, you can be attractive to these companies by being able to help them fill gaps and fill needs that they have in the, internally from their business structure. So just because you might not, like I said, be writing a 10-figure check, doesn't mean you don't have value um, for some of these companies. So if you're out networking with people, don't discount your ability to be able to help them if, if they're in a space in an area where you might want to, uh, to invest one day. And so let's talk about Mercury and kind of the investment thesis. Again, I don't want you to give away secret sauce or, 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 you know, vital internal plans, but what is it that you guys are looking for? What is it that you see? What do you see that's lacking? What what niche do you want to fill in this space in the United States and and internationally? So over the last 15 years, our model has matured. We started out as predominantly seed investors and we're now investing in what's traditionally known as series A investment. And so that's the first uh, investment round after your seed or angel round. So we invest when companies are at what we call product market fit. For that is about us, it's about a half million to a million dollar run rate. Um, they've tended to be uh, grown for a two to four year period, figuring out exactly the product set that the market is looking for. When we did seed investment, we found that it was somewhat inefficient because we couldn't drive market acceptance. But what we figured out we're really good at is helping those companies build their business, right? What are those repeatable processes that sales, marketing, product engineering need? 
Uh, we're really good at helping them build teams through our network, um, helping them interview the right way, uh, using our network to open up customer uh, contacts, you know, other types of contacts like that. So that's our core focus. Uh, the other aspect that's changed too, when we started early on, we did software, life sciences, and physical science investments. And we found over time that especially physical science investments are very difficult to get later rounds, especially in the middle of the country. So we found again that software investing uh, seems to be where the greatest aspect and opportunity for returns are, at least for our firm. So now our mission is to back entrepreneurs that are making the industrial ecosystems of the middle of the country more competitive and efficient. These tend to be entrepreneurs that come from a certain industry, could be manufacturing, real estate, insurance, uh, retail, and they've had the problem themselves and they build a software platform to go back in and help. Now, if you think about being competitive and efficient in this day and age with globalization, uh, we think that's all around automation. And automation comes from data and data science. So we do a lot with data platforms um, and utilizing data scientists to really help these companies kind of drive forward. When we say middle of the country, uh, we think that we call it the mid-continent, right? That's an oil and gas term that we use for the whole middle, but that is the Southwest, the Rockies, or the Midwest. And to investors, institutional individuals, our arbitrage opportunity is there's a lack of venture capital in the middle of the country where you've got a surplus on the coast. And so middle of the country deals are always priced more reasonably, mostly because their exits are a little bit less than they are on the coast. But we try to find deals early where we can be helpful and then drive them uh, to a success. And then the last thing I'll say is we lead or co-lead all of our investments, which means we're the ones writing the term sheet, bringing the other investors in. Um, we put three to four million in initially, and then we'll invest eight to 10 million over the life of an investment. And we look to exit our investments five to seven years after we've invested. Perfect. That's a great synopsis to walk us through. Now I'm going to walk us back because you used a lot of terms and jargons that, that are, that our industry, <laughs> that our listeners might not be familiar with. So I'm going to try to guide it through so we won't make it too, um, too difficult. So how do you define seed? And now granted, there's no hard definition, but when you say seed investing for a new investor, what does that mean for somebody who's like, well, seed series A, you know, what, Angel, what is that in your world? How do you see that? Yeah, when we look at a life cycle of a company, we see a person or a couple of people with an idea, they tend to go out and get friends and family money. That usually is between 50,000, maybe a couple hundred thousand. And then once they've built a product and they may have like a minimum viable product uh, and they're talking to customers, they then may go out and raise their angel round or their seed round. That to us is about a half million to a million dollars. And then using that money, usually the founders who may or may not be salespeople, usually product or engineering types, they will then go out and start selling. We don't necessarily need pricing or sales method to be perfect. We just want to see about a half dozen customers uh, that are spending about a half million a year. And that to us means they've found product market fit. And we think that is when most Series A investors like to invest. Now, some Series A investors consider $2 million to be product market fit. We go a little earlier, I think, because we're more comfortable, because that's kind of our roots of working with you know, young entrepreneurs. Uh, but that seed round tends to be about a half million to a million dollars. Got it. Now, moving to product market fit. You use the term a lot. People can probably infer what that means, but let's give a definition that you like to use um, when, when talking internally. 
Yeah, so when you pitch a new customer, say Exxon, and Exxon says, this is interesting, I'd like to pilot that product. Um, a lot of people can get a pilot with a big company, but it's really, really difficult to have that pilot then turn into more of an enterprise solution or to have someone use it for more than a couple of months. And so what tends to happen is entrepreneurs come to market with something very innovative and it's competing with older products, but in order to get broad usage in a customer, it has to check all the boxes that those broader products have. And so product market fit typically is something new and it's something old. And so it has to have those features in order to be a repeatable sale to not just one customer who may be unique, but multiple. We see lots of entrepreneurs that can sell into one or two places, but it's not scalable selling to many. And so to us, product market fit is more about that than revenue. But we have to give a revenue number to entrepreneurs because talking like we're talking is, is a little bit more sophisticated and it's a little bit more nebulous. You kind of, it's like art, you know it when you see it. Um, and so it's very easy to say, hey, half a million to a million dollars and entrepreneurs are like, gotcha. And all, because we've seen product market fit for as low as 100,000. And we've also seen companies with $4 million that do not have product market fit. Got so it. it's, it's always a balance. So hopefully that's helpful to some of your listeners. Perfect. And then next you use the term run rate. What does run rate mean? So run rate means if you sell $100,000 uh, for one customer, we want to know that that $100,000 is the annual contract value and that they have to renew every single year. And so the way software historically was sold was through client server, where it's just one license. You buy it for 100,000, you own it for life. And now with software as a service, cloud-based software, you're essentially renting it and you basically pay by the month or by the year. So when we think of run rates, we think of annual run rates. And so we want to talk to companies that are on an annual run rate of a half million dollars. And that may be that they've sold uh, roughly $40,000 in one month, but that's recurring revenue month over month. So over a year, the run rates are around a half million dollars. Got it. So ARR would be kind of, if people are seeing those terms, that that's, would be equivalent? Exactly. Got it. And then do you all look at monthly MRRs? There's some other terms as well. Are there other jargon terms with acronyms that kind of get around that, that uh, concept? Yeah. You know, we think of it more annualized. Okay. Um, you know, companies that have smaller annual contract values, more tools than, say, more enterprise platforms, RR focused. And those are companies that may be selling software for ten to fifteen thousand a year. Uh, a lot of our companies, because we're selling into enterprise, are more hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. So we tend to think of it on an annual basis more than a monthly basis. But we have both types of companies. Got it. And when you say the term enterprise, what does that mean? Yeah, enterprise is a larger customer. So if you think about uh, all the groups that you could sell to out there, you've got single office, home office, kind of individual practitioners, right? You've got small to medium-sized businesses. Um, that may be something like a restaurant or it could be a small law firm, um, all the way up to where it gets to about, you know, uh, call it 50 million to 250 million. That's kind of the high end of small to mid-sized businesses. And then you have mid-market companies that are kind of up to like a billion market cap, but then enterprise customers, you know, those tend to be the much larger companies like the Shells, the GEs, the Procter & Gamble's. Got it. And so you're looking for solutions that can be sold to the kind of the largest distribution point. So the big mega companies, so you can, you can, 
you get in there, you've got a very large platform at which you're working. Uh, would that be right? Fair to say? And and a lot of company software to sell into business to choose the market or the enterprise. And a lot of times we meet them in Houston and they're selling into enterprise because we have so many fortune. I work with them to see whether or not the mid market is better around the business model. It's less about is the entrepreneur choosing the right thing. It's if they've already been able to sell on the enterprise without starting at a smaller company and scaling up. That's really, really interesting to us because that's where real, real big money is made. Got it. All right, cool. And so you talked about physical science versus, I guess, software. When you say physical sciences, what does that mean? Yeah, think about materials or chemicals, um, new uh, new additives, you know, things that essentially make uh, hard goods um, and so forth. Uh, my partner, Dan, he has a background in material science. And so we were able to see lots of interesting deals uh, in that space. Uh, but there are firms that are built specifically around the physical sciences and material science. And there's also really great firms that are built around life sciences. And we found when we look back at where our best returns were, as well as where we could kind of what we call uh, the wash, rinse, and repeat in what we do and just getting better and better at it, that was in software. Got it. And then lastly, term sheet. You say that you guys are the lead or co-leads and that you are essentially driving the term sheet or setting the terms. What does that mean exactly? Right. So that's essentially like a letter of intent with a startup. So we are the ones that work with the entrepreneur directly to set those terms by which the investment would be made. And so a term sheet is usually about a five to six page document. And we will negotiate that with the entrepreneur. And it may be for a $5 million investment of which we do three. And then we go out and we syndicate the investment by finding other investors to come in on those terms. And so there's a lot of uh, co-investors out there uh, and a lot of people that won't lead. And when you lead, you end up pricing the investment. Um, and so we're one of the venture firms out there that actually leads at that Series A, which is important, you know, obviously for entrepreneurs. Got it. And so would we could we say that we can juxtapose that with kind of the seed rounds and angel round? Would it say that more the entrepreneur is kind of leading kind of what the valuation will be and, and setting the terms. And then as things become more sophisticated, the more sophisticated money and the larger dollars get to then change kind of the terms a bit. Is that, would that be fair? Yeah, no, I think so. I think, you know, say if, you know, take an angel investment that say you and Felix would look at, uh, it's been our experience that it's less about the entrepreneur negotiating directly with you they would kind of negotiate with the group, even in a group setting and saying, hey, here are the terms that we think are appropriate. And there may be some modification for that, but yeah, we never hear from an entrepreneur what they think is appropriate. They really want to hear about it from us. And you know, what we ask is, hey, what, you know, what did Felix pay in the angel round before? So we kind of know what that uh, valuation was that he paid because the entrepreneur is obviously expecting a step up from that valuation. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's more, it's more one-sided as far as where those terms come from in the, in the later rounds. Great. Cool. All right. I think that was, for those who are listening, he literally just walked you through kind of the VC world in terms of how, why firms choose what they choose and the thought process they use going through that. And so you can find different firms out there who have different focus focuses, but 
having a firm that has a clear understanding of what they do and what they do well um, is a sign of someone who has a lot of experience um, out in, in, in the world. And so let's pivot to your investors now. So you went from high net worth to more institutional. Can you talk about that a little bit more in terms of kind of who it is? Because again, I don't know who always listens to this podcast. So for the, someone who's looking, how is, what does an LP look like for you? A limited partner investor look like for you now? Right. Yeah. So our institutions, we have a few public pension funds, uh, you know, large state pensions, you know, municipalities as well. We have uh, university endowments, uh, a few really well-known ones, you know, across the U.S. are investors. We also have foundations, uh, nonprofit foundations, uh, five, you know, currently um, that are investors. And then we also have organizations called fund of funds. And that's an institutional investor that has multiple investors in their fund. And then they go out and invest directly into other funds. And we have three fund of funds currently. Uh, And that makes up about 85 to 90% of our few previous funds. Uh, But we still have every fund somewhere between 10 to 20 million of high net worth and family office. And the difference there, if your users, you know, some may, it may not understand well, what's a family office versus a high net worth. You know, a family office tends to be a group that has more than a hundred million within their family, and they have an outside individual who manages that money for them and makes the investment decision. Versus a high net worth individual who is wealthy um, and is making that in- individual decision for themselves. Got it. And just uh, I don't know if this is pub- if you publicize this or not. If the individual investor who is a high net worth person wanted to be an LP, if possible, if possible, not saying they could what would be a minimum threshold that they would have to have to come and sit at the table with Mercury? Yeah. So in our funds, our minimum threshold is 250,000 commitment. That's drawn over a 10 year period. And then we also have a sidecar fund for smaller commitments. You know, a lot of the individuals who have been in our funds over time, they want to keep committed. Um, But as they get older, they don't want to put as much, you know, to work. Um, And so for commitments under that level, we have a separate fund that invest side by side along our main fund. Uh, we really try to give kind of maximum exposure to people in our network to be able to invest. Got it. And and so it would be would it be safe to say the only way you're getting in a sidecar is if you've been in LP already. You know, it's it's more around who you know, right? <laughs> like um, just like, like everything, us. relationships. Like everything. <laughs> so we we now typically get referrals in where one of our existing LPs will call us and say, hey, um, I know a family, I know a person, uh, great network. They're looking for exposure into venture capital. You have room in your current fund. Um, and, and the interesting thing is institutions take so long to invest. We always have room in our current fund because our fund cycles, you know, it takes 18 months to two years to raise every fund. Um, but like I said, um, you know, we continue to age out existing high net worth investors as they get older and as they want their assets put more into kind of current yield type products. Uh, and we bring in other investors that it, that it makes sense to do. Uh, Cause like we've, we've always had a good high net worth uh, population in our, L- our LP base. Got it. And so, and my last question for you is what advice do you have for, let's just say high net worth individuals, people who are looking to, to, to operate in this space, but don't necessarily have history. Um, what, what, what advice can you give somebody if you can remember back to your early days when you were first starting? Yeah, you know, it was interesting for me, having been part of another fund, I got to watch how that fund was operated and managed. 
and also how they conducted their annual meetings, how they conducted investor relations, all those types of things. And you learn a lot, right, going through that. What I've seen in my funds is we've had numerous high net worth individuals invest and over the last 15 years launch their own funds. And when I've spoken to them, they've said, you know, we basically decided, hey, I want to do angel investing because frankly, I think angel investing is more fun than investing in a venture firm because you actually are interacting more with uh, you know, the entrepreneur. Um, the venture firm just gives you really good diversification uh, and you know, hopefully kind of a baseline, right? But if you're looking to launch a venture fund, there's no better way to learn than to invest in a venture fund. And so I've always told people, look, if you can, if you can find funds that bring people in at smaller commitment levels, attend their annual meetings, you know, see their quarterly reports, you know, take them to lunch, ask how things are going. Um, I mean, that, that's how I learned, you know, through working at these other groups. Um, but it's been really fascinating to me to watch how many funds launch that way. Not just our fund, but other funds, you know, around Texas. Good. That's great. I, I, I had no idea. That's that, that, that is great information. I appreciate it. Now, you've been generous with your time. What I want you to do is be able to kind of promote yourself and promote your fund within SEC guidelines, of course. Um, but in terms of kind of your history, and I think we're going to be able to get a whatever material you have, we're going to go ahead and, and, and put it on the show notes page. Um, it'll be thephysiciansroad.com forward slash mercury. Um, so we can allow people to download information about your firm that's publicly available. Um, but I want you to be able to toot your own horn, go ahead, promote yourselves. If you can give kind of returns over your history and it's not in a violation of any kind, please do that. Um, Cause we really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this for our audience. No, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it too. Yeah. And so we're in the midst of closing out our fourth fund. So unfortunately there's something I can't say because of SEC you know, rules. But if you look at Mercury overall, we were the first firm to look at the middle of the country as a region unto itself. We had never seen a group do that. And the reason we did it is we believe venture funds um, are most successful when they're thematic, right? When you invest in a theme, that means you do multiple deals in a theme, you build out your network in a theme, you become an expert, right? Much like a lawyer is an expert, a banker is an expert, you name it, you know, a doctor is an expert. Um, and we really believe capital and talent is starting to flow from the coasts into the middle of the country because the activity that's happened on the coasts, talent is so hard to come by and it's so expensive to live in places like New York and San Francisco. You are starting to see people move to the middle. When you look at industries that really need innovation, um, they're in the middle of the country. Right? Think about agriculture, manufacturing, the energy space, the utility space. There aren't enough venture funds that focus on those types of companies. And those companies, are they employ so much of the U.S. population. They're so vital to our infrastructure and our ongoing uh, push. We think more and more companies are going to focus uh, on those types of groups. And that's just something that we're very, very good at and we've you know, spent our careers doing. Um, the other thing, too, uh, our methodology and how we grow companies, Companies. We believe you have to go slow to go fast. A lot of venture capitalists will give companies money and they'll show up on a quarterly or monthly board meeting and just expect things to go well. Uh, I mean, we dig in that first year and try to work with companies to figure out exactly how things are going. And that's one of the big, uh, the big, uh, you know, aspects of our firm. Um, and also, too, we're proud of Houston. Uh, you know, for years we've been the largest venture capital here, but I think more and more people are seeing Houston as more of a center for entrepreneurs. And so hopefully we'll have a lot more funds uh, to do deals with over the next few years. Perfect. Blair, thank you so much for your time. Um, 
we're going to pivot now and but if you feel free if you have other business to take care of you can just uh shut down if you like um we're going to pivot now to um attorney attorney felix chevalier um and talk a little bit about the initiatives he's working on within um not just the city of houston but to bring uh smaller investors in these sidecar types of things um to get access and exposure for those who might not be able to write a $250,000 or a $500,000 check, how creating those relationships can allow people to get access to these types of opportunities. And so just to give a little bit of background on Felix, he's an attorney and investor here in Houston, Texas. He represents companies in various industries such as energy, tech, manufacturing, healthcare, and transportation who are seeking market entry through governmental agencies domestically and internationally. Felix also works with companies abroad seeking to enter the U.S. market. And so, Felix, tell us what attracted you, what's attracting you to this space now um, where you are in Houston. Well, it's a, uh, thanks again, Eric uh, and, and Blair, good to see you. Um, so it, I'll give you some history. I, um, I went to the State University of New York, college at New Paltz, upstate New York, and then I went to uh, St. John's for law school. Uh, like you guys, I came here in the late 90s. I moved here in 97, uh, uh, worked at a couple of uh, firms. Coincidentally, uh, Blair and I met in uh, Mexico City, Mexico, back in, I think, 2000? So it was like 19 years ago, Blair? Yeah, 2000. Uh, that we met. Yeah, and, and um, uh, we were working with the tech company uh, out in Mexico City. So that was 19 years ago. Uh, <clears throat> well, since then, uh, back in uh, 2005, I started my own law practice, uh, started off with working with small business owners, uh, and that grew from working with small business owners to mid-cap firms to then uh, even some enterprise uh, firms uh, as well. Those companies uh, that I've represented are some very well-known uh, companies, whether it's in aviation, healthcare, uh, manufacturing, uh, and technology as well. And... <clears throat> You know, while I while I was uh, running my practice and representing these uh, major companies, working on you know multi million dollar deals, uh, I was also um, uh, active uh, with some friends in town, putting the, together these uh, uh, professional networking groups. And what we realized over time was that the people who we were interfacing with were centers of influence themselves, uh, and they. I kind of put them in three buckets. There are three buckets they tend to fall in. Some of them fall into more than one bucket, but they typically tend to be people who uh, are expert in their particular domain, uh, folks who are entrepreneurs and maybe seeking funding for uh, their business in order to be able to scale. Uh, and then you have folks who have uh, access to uh, money, but don't know the best way to uh, in, uh, to invest their money uh, so it can grow. And so over time, we realized that it would probably make sense for us to create a scenario where we can uh, create an ecosystem where all of these buckets can converge and allow the folks who have money to invest with companies that uh, fit what they're looking for and then leverage the expertise 
of the people who we have access to to advance um, uh, the objectives of the company. Uh, so for example, you may have a, a tech company uh, who needs money, but they also need, uh, the, the investors need someone to actually conduct the due diligence. Or they would like to identify people who have a certain area of expertise, whether it's accounting, legal, uh, HR, whatever the case may be. So we realized we had this ecosystem all these value assets, and uh, our task was to uh, essentially pull them together so we could figure out ways where we can uh, scale these various businesses. Got it. So it sounds like, <clears throat> excuse me, so it sounds like what we were talking about with Blair in terms of his LPs and his high net worth LPs can often be strategic um, partners for them that you may or may not find on the front end. It appears what you're doing, um, along with Mathis and with uh, Heath Butler, who couldn't be with us here today, is intentionally creating a valuable group of potential um, high net worth investors and exposing them even before they become necessarily an investor in any of these companies. So almost in many ways, training them through that process so they can know what to understand and then also know how they can actually help. Would that be a fair assessment? That is a very good assessment. I like uh, uh, Heath Butler, uh, who's one of uh, our partners, uh, says that we like to educate, empower, and enable folks. And so we, 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 we're living by that mantra because there are a lot of folks who may know how, uh, uh, may have the know-how and have the ability, but are not enabled to do it. And so uh, part of our task is to enable folks who are uh, sophisticated, to invest, uh, and those who may be interested in investing learn how to do so. Got it. And so walk through those three E's again. Uh, educate, empower, and, and enable. Great. Perfect. And so from, so from that standpoint, I know that you all are working on, and, I, and I'm helping you all with that as well. So I know you all are working on kind of a, a platform to be able to help people walk through that educational process an empowerment process. And I always say to my investors, once you have a clear understanding of what it is you're trying to invest in and what it is you want to accomplish, it's so much easier to be able to invest because it's just not a black box. You're just not throwing money at things without a clear understanding. Now, doesn't mean it's always going to work out, but getting people on an on-ramp of education where they feel comfortable of where they are and what they can potentially do to help move forward their own investments, um, I think is a, is a potentially very unique process um, that I don't see a lot of other people um, doing and, and fixating on right now in, 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 in the space. And so, sure. from, go ahead. For sure. And so, I was, is there anything I was you'd like say to tell the audience? Sure. We're going to wrap up now. We've been on about 35 minutes, so we're going to wrap up. Is there anything you'd like to tell the audience and, and, and convey to them um, about, because you and I are both newbies in the space as well when it comes to early stage and angel investing. And so from your perspective, kind of how has this process been for you? And, and can, can you relate it to somebody who wants to be in the space and is just getting their feet wet? Kind of how has that process been for you at this point? So I am a lawyer, um, which means I've received post-secondary education and it has been educational for me. So I, I have actually and am still going through the process that I just talked about, educating, empowering, and enabling. Um, 
I, I went through the process of being uh, educated on uh, uh, investing in funds, just learning basic terminology. I, I like the fact that uh, as Blair was going through um, uh, his uh, comments that you singled out certain terminology that um, is common in this fund, you know, investment ecosystem, but to the uh, person who's not in this ecosystem, they're, they're going to want to know, what do you mean by IRR? And um, what does scale mean, right? You know, like, is it something you step on and see how much you weigh, right? So it, it is a learning journey, and it doesn't matter how educated you are. There is always something new that you can learn. So the first part is educating folks. Once you educate them, they've, in effect, been empowered because now they know what they can potentially get into. They can then ask more questions, which will give them even greater comfort. And then the next part of the equation is providing them options for investing if they wish to do so. So we, we welcome folks to ask us questions. Um, I'm sure, Eric, you'll be providing uh, contact information for those who may have uh, additional questions. We'll be happy to respond to them. Oh, absolutely. Actually, Felix, go ahead and um, you can give your contact information. Now. I didn't want to volunteer that for Blair, so I won't. Um, but Felix, you know, we're friends. You'll, you'll take care of my folks if they call you. So you want to give your contact information out? Sure, sure, sure. So I'll give you two things. Email address is fchevalier at chevalierlaw.com. That's F-C-H-E-V as in Victor, A-L-I-E-R at chevalierlaw.com. And the number is 713-893-0500. Again, 713-893-0500. Perfect. And then I will on the, I, I will on the, on the, on the show notes page, put contact information. I know Mathis couldn't be with us today. I'm going to put his contact information on there as well. And we'll, we'll likely do a follow-up just specifically on um, kind of what you all are putting together as it relates to bringing and in educating investors on this early stage um, process. And so from that standpoint, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast. And so again, I want to thank Blair Guru for, and Felix Chevalier for being with us today on the Physicians Road podcast, uh, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please, you can connect with us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. You just have to answer a couple of questions and we'll, we will let you in. So you just go to Facebook and put in the physiciansroad.com. And then to get all the information from today's show, you just go to www.thephysicians, with an S, road.com forward slash mercury. And we'll have all this information and, and a lot of the terminology we talked about. We'll try to put up some definitions for you all as well. Because as you all know, my whole point of existing with the podcast is to educate you all um, in areas that we typically do not get educated on through our professional process and training. So I want to thank you again. Thanks, Blair. Thanks, Felix. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you.
Good to see you guys. Bye-bye. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources. Thank you.